Tonight, however, we will uh, finish uh, our study. The series has been uh, uh, called Life Lessons uh, from the Holy Land. And uh, we've been all over the Holy Land over the last several months from the south and to the north and east and west. And tonight I'd like to take you to a most interesting place uh, called the Eastern Gate and also uh, give you a little view of uh, a place called the Mount of Olives. See, if you were in Jerusalem today, there's the old city of Jerusalem, and then it's surrounded by modern-day Jerusalem. The old city is the one that the Lord uh, was quite familiar with. And if you were uh, in the old city of Jerusalem today and looked to the east, uh, you would see a valley called the Kidron Valley, and there used to be a bridge over it in the time of the Lord. And he uh, walked over it many times to make his way. If you continue to look east from the Kidron Valley, then you see an elevated hilly area known as the Mount of Olives. And, and you can visit the Mount of Olives today and stand uh, on the mount that the Lord spent so much time on, you know, he would make uh, lots of private visits there. He was often found praying in certain special spots on the Mount of Olives. He would go for private time there so as to be alone with his father. He taught many people from the Mount of Olives, and he wept. Can you imagine? transcendent deity, he who spoke all things into existence, even with the power of his very word, he who has no beginning nor any end, limitless, self-sustaining, self-sufficient God. He was moved to tears once from the Mount of Olives as he looked into this very city across the Kidron Valley. He looked into Jerusalem, its inhabitants, you see, being God, he, he sees the end from the beginning. He's not time-bound, and he knew what their fate was to be. He knew what was coming and it wasn't going to be a good one. They exchanged him as their chief shepherd uh, for pretenders to the throne and sadly he let them have their way. And now they would be subject to ravenous wolves. He saw it and so he wept over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Well, if you're in the old city of Jerusalem, you see that it is uh, bounded by a perimeter defensive wall in which are many gates. The eastern gate is the one I want to talk to you about tonight. It's also known as the golden gate. It's the eastern gate because it's on the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem. It's characterized by two arches, also known, as I say, as the golden gate. If you go to Jerusalem today, you see that there are eight gates in this walled defensive structure. In the time of the Lord, there were 11. There are eight today, 11 then. And the Lord made his way from the Mount of Olives on more than one occasion through this very gate. I think of one occasion in particular when he entered into the old city of Jerusalem on his way directly to the Temple Mount. And, you know, he was mounted on a donkey at that particular time. But it is to this very place, the Mount of Olives, uh, that this most humble deity, this Lord who stooped so low, will one day return. And he will enter through these gates again, but in an entirely different uh, fashion, I promise you. 
The gate that stands there today and the one that we are viewing was built probably around 520 A.D., although some experts suggest a later date, a little later in the 7th century, I don't know for sure, somewhere in there, 5th to the 7th centuries, uh, the present uh, gate and walls were constructed. The eastern gate, however, archaeologists have determined, sits right on top of the original gate that existed uh, in the Lord's day. So they have found ruins uh, artifacts and um, pieces of that ancient gate. This one that we're looking at and uh, speaking about tonight sits right on top of it. The Lord Jesus uh, enfleshed, uh, came down from the Mount of Olives and entered Jerusalem on one special occasion, which I mentioned earlier. He entered Jerusalem through this gate, the eastern gate, on the day we now refer to as Palm Sunday. It was during the feast of Passover when he did so, and the Apostle John records for us the details of his visit, his entrance into the old city of Jerusalem. He says this, the Apostle John does, it's in chapter 12 of his gospel. He said, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, see, that's the feast of the Passover. Jews from all over the world would have made pilgrimage to the city on this Day And the Lord Jesus, being an observant Jew, also was there. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. See, the palm trees, hence we derive the name Palm Sunday from it. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, and here now John quotes from a biblical writer who wrote several hundred years before John, a prophet of old in the Old Testament said, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So the Lord Jesus was walking on this occasion toward Jerusalem. He had come over from Bethany, Beit Ani, Lazarus was there, you recall. He had come over on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's on foot. He comes near the old city of Jerusalem. He pauses and he says to two of his disciples, learners, followers, devoted followers, he said to them, go into, he pointed to a nearby village. He said, you will find there a donkey. Get it for me. If someone asks you what you're doing, say, the Lord, the master has need of it. This was unusual in many respects. Uh, one of the uh, departures from the custom uh, we see in the Lord's life was that we don't have a record of him really riding on donkeys. He made his way through the land on foot, you see. He probably was healthy physically, had a measure of stamina and fitness because you have all these rolling hills and he had to walk from place to place. But here we see very, very clearly, no, 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 he chose not to walk through the eastern gate and into Jerusalem he chose to ride on a donkey. Why? But the Lord didn't do anything arbitrarily. There's nothing in the Bible that isn't of significance. Why? What, what, what is he trying to tell us? What's the point he's making? I think the point is this. I think he's saying to the watching world, Behold, your king, humble and mounted on a colt, even the foal of a donkey. This was so unusual. 
in this day, people were used to conquering warriors coming into the city after their victory, after their conquest, but not on a donkey. Oh, no, seated in the grandeur of it all, on top of a white, a glorious white stallion, a beautiful, powerful white horse, not, not, not a donkey, borrowed, not even owned, borrowed from a poor nearby village. Why, why didn't King Jesus then enter Jerusalem at a point of triumph and victory? mounted on a white steed, which was the custom of the day. I think, I think the point is he's saying, I, I, I didn't come to conquer you. I came to save you. I didn't come to make war with you. I came to make peace between you and the God with whom you are at war. I think he said, I didn't come to slaughter you. I came to slay for you the last enemy, your last enemy, death and dying. So this was not arbitrary. It wasn't whimsy. This was a message. This was a loud message. This is a message of almighty God who said, look how I've reduced myself Look how I came down so as to bring you up with me forevermore to the inner recesses of the temple made without hands, to the holy of holies, you, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, black and white, can freely enter through, through my blood. So he came not on a white horse, but on a, a donkey, and he entered into Jerusalem. Well, several centuries after the Lord did this, through a series of circumstances too complicated to go into, uh, Jerusalem came under the hands of the Turkish people. They came to be dominated um, by the Ottoman Turks, whose leader was quite an amazing man. His name was Suleiman, a Muslim man, Suleiman. And Suleiman sealed off this golden, this eastern gate in 1541 A.D. Suleiman did it. He bricked it in. You've seen it depicted here in the photos before you. You can't walk through it now. It's not open. It's closed. Why did he do it? Well, he was quite a smart man and he studied the culture, found out that the Jewish people of the day had a very vibrant messianic expectation. I wish my people did today. They don't, but they did then. They had an expectation of a coming Messiah and they were persuaded rightly through their reading of the scriptures that when the Messiah comes, he will return and make a grand entrance through this eastern gate. Suleiman would have none of that. And so as to keep the Messiah out, he bricked in the gate. That's a true story. It remains closed today. Not only that, subsequent to this, the Muslim people um, um, put a cemetery there right outside the eastern gate. It's, it's there today, the bricks of Suleiman and uh, this Muslim cemetery. The thinking being, this, this Messiah, this, 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 this Jewish Messiah, these people are, uh, looking to and expecting to return. 
he is a uh, righteous one. It, because even in Islamic thought, Jesus is a righteous one. You see, he's thought to be a righteous prophet. If people think he's the Messiah and he's Jewish, um, we know Jewish law and no Jewish priest, he being the high priest, no Jewish priest is allowed to risk ceremonial defilement by walking through a cemetery, especially a Gentile cemetery. You get cooties. <laughs> Telling you that's the thinking. And so they put not only a bricked-in wall at the gate, the eastern gate, but there's a cemetery there today. And in spite of all kinds of efforts over the years, the gate to this very day remains entirely closed since 1541. However, though no mortal has succeeded in unsealing it, I promise you one day it will be opened and the Lord Jesus, who is no mere mortal, will enter Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, through this gate still yet one more time. And Zechariah, another biblical writer, Old Testament prophet, tells us all about the Lord's second coming. And what's marvelous about what Zechariah tells us is that Zechariah told us when he wrote about the Lord's second coming way before even the Lord's first coming. These are real prophets. They're not guessing. God has inspired them to see what they wrote. So Zechariah writes this about the Lord's second coming at a time when the Lord hadn't even come the first time yet. Zechariah says, it's chapter 14, verse 4, and in that day, it's future, his feet, he's not a ghost, he's not an apparition, he's embodied, he's enfleshed, his feet, his feet, he's not a myth, this is not a fable, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. You see, it's just as we've been speaking of. This is the very place from which the Lord Jesus ascended. This is the very place. And so the place of his departure will, in fact, be the very place of his return. The place of his agony will be the very place of his glorious appearing. And Zechariah says, and the Mount of Olives, listen to this, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west. By a very large valley, it doesn't exist now, but will then. By a very large valley, so that, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You see, when the Lord Jesus comes again, at the Lord Jesus' second coming, there will be all manner of changes. In that day, nature will do his bidding but in that day, so will all of mankind. It's his second coming. It's worth being hopeful about the future. And so based upon this topographic redesign through supernatural intervention, there will be opened up a pathway, a direct pathway from, not a bridge, a valley from the Mount of Olives directly through the eastern gate and to the place where the temple 
will, not now, will in that day stand again. And the Lord Jesus will travel down this pathway just as he did 2,000 years ago. But same place, but entirely different circumstances. He will not make his way in that day from the Mount of Olives through the Eastern Gate in the same way in which he did the first time he came. Then he entered Zechariah and John, the apostle tells us, humble and mounted on a donkey. Then he entered, don't you see, as a Passover lamb during the time of Passover to cry out, I am the Passover lamb. My sacrifice is meant for all peoples. He entered then as the suffering servant, the lamb of God. But the second time he enters Jerusalem, the next time, At the second coming, he will come not as the lamb, uh, but as the lion of Judah. The next time is described for us uh, very specifically in Revelation chapter 19. I read just a few verses. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And I, it's John, John, he sees, I saw. You know, there's certain things you can't be told about. You just have to see it to believe it, and I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven opened. He's looking up, John, in a vision given by God. He sees heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Not a donkey, a white horse. Don't you see just what I was saying? This is what victorious, triumphant conquerors uh, came in on, not on a donkey, John sees it in that day. This is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Heaven was opened up. John saw it. And he saw a white horse. And he, person, he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Could you please tell me who that's a reference to? It has to be the Lord Jesus. Who also could bear consistently this moniker, faithful and true? Who is consistently faithful and true? Whose life is unmarred by unfaithfulness, by deception, by lies, by falsehood? It's the Lord Jesus. I am the way and the truth, he said, when he was here. He is the one who's called faithful and truth. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. The second coming is entirely different than the first coming. The first time he came to wage war against our sin, for sure, for us. But the second time he's going to come, I must tell you this, he's going to come to wage war against the unrepentant sinner. I have to tell you this, it's not attractive. We don't want to think of God in these terms. Boy, we estimate, underestimate his holiness, don't you see? He came the first time to make for peace. But if you reject the Prince of Peace, he will come the second time for judgment and war against you. Do you realize how serious this is? His eyes, John goes on to say, are like a flame of fire. Don't you see? It's a metaphor. They're piercing. Please tell me what you can hide from one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Please tell me what secrets you have succeeded in keeping from uh, the rest of us up until this point that you think foolishly you'll be able to hide from a God whose eyes 
flame like the fire. Please tell me what mitigating circumstances, what flimsy excuses you're going to make for why you refused his pardon the first time he came. Why you disrespect his dying on the cross for you. Why you won't accept him as lamb. You'll have to face him as lion, roaring lion, consuming fire. And on his head, John says, are many diadems. They are crowns. It's a symbol of the intensity and multiplicity of his sovereignty. He's not elected. He doesn't take over by force. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's not a national ruler. On his head are many diadems. Again, it's a metaphor of total and complete, unlimited sovereignty. There's no world's ruler today carving up the world for selfish reasons who could stand against he whose eyes are like a flaming fire, whose head reveals all of these crowns. He's the most sovereign. He's the most high God. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. You know, there are some mysterious things about the Lord Jesus, and we're going to have, if you're a Christ follower, eternity to discover them. He can never be fully known. He has a name which no one knows. When John wrote this, in the day, practitioners of magic and false religion and occultism thought, if you know the name of one, you have power over that one. Ah, I wonder if that's why it says he has a name which no one knows. Because nobody can exert power over the all-powerful, omnipotent Lord Jesus Christ who will come the second time in an entirely different fashion. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, who are they? Surely, I suppose, an angelic host. And also, I like to think, you and me. Because we're not reading here about the rapture. The rapture will have taken place before the second coming. At the rapture, the Lord comes, but he doesn't stand on the Mount of Olives. Oh, no, he catches us up where we meet him in the air. We go to be with him. Heaven is opened up for us at the rapture, but at the second coming, heaven is opened up so that we can return with the Lord Jesus Christ and share in his victory. The armies which are in heaven are clothed, don't you see, in fine linen, white and clean. That's a symbol of purity, pardon, forgiveness. We will be perfected. We will be completely cleansed. We will be pure. We will be bedecked in white and clean attire. We will follow him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Just when I'm on the verge of falling into despair about the world's situation because it's so crooked and broken. I want to remember the second coming. I want to remember the grand and glorious conclusion to it all. I want to apologize to the Lord for thinking I have a greater sense of what's right and what's wrong than he does. 
I want to apologize to him for thinking I have to fix the world. I have to save it. No. At his second coming, he'll do that. He'll straighten it out. He'll deal with evildoers. All crookedness will be smoked out. He'll fix it all. He will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress. I know people don't like this, but I'm just reading from his word. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes the second time, regardless of who is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, regardless of whom is leading us in the United States, regardless of who is the... uh, country leader of Russia or England or Haiti, regardless, regardless, everyone will have to make do with the king above all kings and the one who is the Lord above all lords. At his first coming, folks, he entered the eastern gate as a suffering servant, but at his second coming, he will enter through the eastern gate, don't you see, as judge and conqueror, as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. At his first coming, he came for a brief time. But at his second coming, he will come to permanently establish his rule and reign first upon the earth and then in heaven forevermore. Do you know there are over 1,527, I didn't look it up, uh, I didn't count them, I, I borrowed this from someone, over 1,527 verses of Old Testament scripture Uh, that refer us to the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. 23 out of 27 of the books of the New Testament refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first coming, there are eight which look forward to his second coming and So too should we. We're coming to the conclusion of a mere series. (laughs) But there also will be the conclusion to all that disturbs us here on earth. Live life. It's a gift. Live it abundant and free. Rejoice in the Lord always. No, he's got the whole world in his hands. No, he's coming again. Now I have to tell you something. If you have respected, if you have recognized, if you have rightly responded to his first coming, here's the life lesson from our visit to the Eastern Gate. Here's a life lesson. If you have rightly responded to his first coming, you will be rejoicing at his second coming. You know where I'm going. But if you have dismissed his first coming, you will experience the wrath of an uncompromisingly holy God at his second coming. You don't want that, neither does he. That's why he came the first time, humble, mounted on a colt. It's a symbol. He didn't come to make war against you. He came to make peace with you through the blood of the cross. If you disrespect it, if you deny it, if you minimize it, if you disregard it, if you're apathetic, if you're indifferent, whatever it is, 
you will have no cause for rejoicing at his second coming. If you've responded rightly to what the Lord Jesus did the first time, he obtained forgiveness of sin. In dying and then rising up from it as the first fruits of it, he defeated this horrible foe called death so we could live forevermore. At his first coming, he enabled those of us who are alienated from God, adversaries at war with the holy God, because we have a sin nature. He enabled us not only to be at peace with him, but to be adopted and to be referred to as the sons and daughters of God. I memorized this verse the other day. See, it says, how great a love the Father I love the term, father, family term, has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. Children of God do not fear the wrath of the father. There is no such thing. Those who have not been adopted by faith through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ into the family of God, have, have much to be concerned about. One time a man who visited our church said, Stuart, you're doing well until you started to talk about all that hell business. And then you ruined it. It is a kind of a downer. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. No. No. We stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His eyes are piercing. They're like fire. He looks right through us. He doesn't evaluate us on the basis of overt behavior only, which, with which you can fool people. He sees the heart. He sees it to be wicked. He sees it to be self-centered. He, he sees it to be against him. And, and he judges us for it. Or, or, or. He sees that our hearts have been filled to overflow with deep appreciation and gratitude, with holiness for what he has done for us at his first coming. Our missions pastor has so well presented opportunities for us to minister here as well as there. And I think about my own reluctance to go across the street. And I think about the Lord Jesus who stooped so low and came on a donkey. A donkey. For me. So that there could be peace. (sighs) Folks, this concludes our series, but it could be the start of a glorious and grand hopeful expectation for you of your future. I'm not afraid of dying, (laughs) and I'm not afraid of living. And I am so excited about how this huge globe, which we have corrupted and messed up, is going to be made new and wonderful and pure and characterized by righteousness. Because it will be characterized by the rule and reign of the one, the only one, who could bear the name faithful and true. The world has never seen a political leader like that. We will see the Lord Jesus seated on the throne in Jerusalem. 
I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Listen, we grieve over the loss of life in Haiti. If it's a believer whose life ended during this terrible tragedy, I'm not sure it's such a tragedy. What's really tragic is for a one to live on, spared a tragedy, a natural disaster, and then having lived life with great indifference to the Creator, and then suddenly finding that you're in His presence, overwhelmed by His holiness, and He's simply going to give you what your heart demanded, separation from Him. That's a tragedy. So, Lord Jesus, with every ounce of our being, we plead with anyone here tonight who has not settled things with you to do so. It's your doing, isn't it? You're the Savior. And I don't know how this works, Lord, but the person has to accept you. The person has a responsibility. A person cannot save himself or herself. You're the Savior, but the person has to say, Save me, Lord Jesus, from judgment to come. Make me your own. Let's be a peace, peacemaker. Forgive my sin. Though my sins are as scarlet, I look forward to the day when they'll be white as snow. Cleanse me. Free me. Pardon me. Lord Jesus, I will no longer take your first coming for granted. Come into my life now. And then when you come again, I will greet you with great joy. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.